Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Joining us today is Juliana Barr, MD, FCCM, Associate ICU Medical Director at the Veteran Affairs uh, Hospital in Palo Alto, uh, California. Uh, Dr. Barr is also Associate Professor of Anesthesia at Stanford University. Dr. Barr is the lead author of a clinical practice guideline for management of pain, agitation, and delirium in adult patients in the intensive care unit. And this was published in the January issue of Critical Care Medicine. She also presented on this topic at the 42nd Critical Care Congress. Dr. Barr, welcome to iCritical Care. Thank you, Dr. Guy, for that introduction. And I'd like to thank the Society of Critical Care Medicine for giving me this opportunity today to talk with you about the 2013 ICU Pain, Agitation, and Delirium Guidelines for Adult ICU Patients, also known as the PAD Guidelines. How is the 2013 version of the Pain, Agitation, and Delirium Guidelines differ from the ones that were previously published way back in 2002? These guidelines differ considerably, Dr. Guy, from previous versions in terms of the methods used, their content, and scope. Our methodologic approach for the 2013 PAD guidelines included the use of grade methodology, a professional librarian, an electronic web-based database, and an anonymous polling scheme of guideline task force members in order to achieve consensus for all statements and recommendations. The statements and recommendations included in the 2013 PAD guidelines were developed using the grading of recommendations, assessment, development and evaluation method, also known as the GRADE method. The GRADE method was developed by Gordon Guyatt and colleagues at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. And for those interested in learning more about the GRADE method, I refer you to their website, www.gradeworkinggroup.org. The use of GRADE allows for guideline recommendations to be based upon not only the strength of the evidence, but the risks and benefits of each intervention as well. In this context, GRADE allows for strong recommendations to be made based upon weak evidence and vice versa. If there's insufficient evidence or if the evidence is conflicting, then no recommendation is made. GRADE does not allow for expert opinion to be used in the absence of evidence, which enables us to make more robust statements and recommendations in these guidelines. By contrast, the earlier 2002 version of the these guidelines were developed using the Cochrane method, which grades guideline recommendations strictly on the strength of published evidence and allows for the substitution of expert consensus opinion in the absence of evidence. A professional librarian conducted all of our literature searches and created and maintained the PAD electronic database. PAD task force members developed all clinical questions and a corresponding list of keywords and identified appropriate clinical databases to search. The librarian then identified corresponding MESH terms and standardized the search methodology and created a web-based electronic database using RepWork software. Previously published work has shown that the use of a librarian to conduct literature searches increases the yield of relevant articles by 30%, and the creation of a searchable online password-protected database, which included relevant PDFs and was accessible to all guideline task force members, helped us to streamline the literature review process. Our librarian helped to maintain this database, and he automatically repeated all of our searches on a biweekly basis, adding new references as they became available, which helped to ensure that the 2013 PAD guidelines were up to date at the time of publication. Currently, this guideline database includes over 19,000 references. By contrast, for the previous version of these guidelines, 
A professional librarian was not used. All searches and search strategies were developed by individual task force members and were not standardized, and no single comprehensive database was created. For the 2013 PAD guidelines, we also used anonymous polling of all task force members to develop all statements and recommendations with predefined voting thresholds used to achieve group consensus. The use of GRADE combined with this anonymous voting scheme ensured a more democratic process in guideline development. It improved inter-rater reliability and helped us to achieve a higher degree of consensus in developing the statements and recommendations included in these guidelines. By contrast, anonymous polling was not used to develop the 2002 version of the guidelines, and group consensus on these recommendations was achieved by informal group discussions, resulting in a less transparent process for developing guideline recommendations. The 2013 PAD guidelines are more patient-centered and less drug-centered than the previous version. They stress the importance of monitoring pain, sedation and agitation, and delirium separately in ICU patients using valid and reliable assessment tools. They include comprehensive psychometric analyses of existing pain, sedation, and delirium monitoring tools, identifying the most valid and reliable tools for use in each of these domains. They emphasize the importance of optimizing pain management first, then sedating patients as needed also referred to as an analgesia first or analgo sedation strategy. They stress the need to maintain light rather than deep levels of sedation in order to improve ICU outcomes. They place a greater emphasis on delirium risk factors, monitoring, treatment, prevention, and the short and long-term outcomes associated with delirium in ICU patients. They include both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic approaches to managing pain, agitation, and delirium in critically ill patients. But perhaps most importantly, the 2013 PAD guidelines stress the importance of taking a more integrated and interdisciplinary approach to managing pain, agitation, and sedation, and delirium in critically ill patients through the use of the ICU PAD care bundle. The 2013 PAD guidelines are the most extensive set of critical care clinical practice guidelines ever to be published. They include twice the number of recommendations than the previous version of these guidelines and are more than 50% larger than the 2008 ICU sepsis guidelines. They focus only on adult ICU patients with a separate set of ICU PAD guidelines currently being developed for pediatric ICU patients. They include both short and long-term PAD management for both intubated and non-intubated ICU patients. They provide a more diverse set of recommendations for both medical and surgical ICU patients, and they include specific recommendations for using regional analgesia in ICU patients. They are more evidence-based, which helps to identify literature gaps and potential areas for future research. From the review of that, what I heard was there are 19,000 reference articles and a large consortium of individuals that graded the evidence to to really make this a, a rather robust um, set of guidelines. Correct. Also that, you know, in, in 2002 to 2013, really in 2002, where was the state of the science, particularly in regards to delirium and agitation? It's a much, It's dramatically a much different science and practice than it was 10 years ago. Yes, I believe it is. I, I think in the domain of delirium in particular, there's much more that we understand now about 
the incidence of delirium in critically ill patients, the risk factors for patients developing delirium, uh, how to monitor delirium in a reliable fashion, and perhaps most importantly, what the long-term potential clinical outcomes are for patients who develop delirium in the ICU. And I think in general, the basic understanding that we have about pain management and the importance of pain management and the prevalence of pain in critically ill patients has also increased dramatically since these guidelines were last published. But perhaps most importantly, I think the biggest change over the last decade or so since the 2002 guidelines were published is that we have a clear idea of the relationship between managing pain, uh, sedation, and delirium to how we manage mechanical ventilation and early mobility and sleep-wake cycles in critically ill patients. So the credibility of, you know, a a guideline that is now 11 years old, uh, certainly needing a new one, uh, people have to embrace the concept that the guidelines needed to be updated. I mean, in, in 2002, we were, weren't we still calling this ICU psychosis and just writing it off as a diagnosis of exclusion? Okay, well, just to be clear, the 2002 guidelines weren't just about delirium, right? They were about sedation and analgesia, and delirium was kind of a sidecar topic because delirium was relatively new in terms of being identified as a disease entity in critically ill patients. I think a lot of times delirium has been attributed to um, suspected withdrawal, uh, drug withdrawal syndromes or alcohol withdrawal or uh, exacerbation of underlying psychiatric illnesses or dementia or confusion due to sleep deprivation in the ICU, but there's lots we don't understand about what the mechanisms are and the causes of delirium in critically ill patients, Um, and I think that what these guidelines do is they highlight the importance of recognizing just how prevalent and, and common and serious delirium really is in ICU patients and and the importance of recognizing it and treating it and uh, minimizing the severity and duration of it in order to improve long-term and short-term outcomes in critically ill patients. And, And it has made significant leaps in the last 11 years where before it wasn't even recognized as a, as a, a disease. Now we recognize it as a disease that we can impact, take proactive measures to reduce the likelihood, and if left untreated or unaddressed, has significant morbidity and mortality in the intensive care unit and even after the intensive care unit. And all that's been in the last 11 years, right? Correct. Describe for us the elements of the ICU care bundle uh, for the, the provider, the physician provider and the nurse provider in the intensive care unit. Well, what we've done is we've taken the bulk of the 54 statements and recommendations included in the 2013 PAD guidelines and incorporated them into a PAD care bundle, which takes an integrated approach to assessing, treating, and preventing significant pain over under, over, or under sedation and delirium in critically ill patients. 
It also links pad management strategies with other ICU interventions such as spontaneous awakening trials, early mobility protocols, environmental management strategies to improve patient sleep-wake cycles, all in order to achieve additional improvements in ICU patient outcomes. Over the last two decades, I think, a large body of evidence has shown us that using sedation protocols, which minimize depth of sedation through the use of either sedation titration protocols or daily sedation holidays, um, RT, RN-driven ICU ventilator weaning protocols and early mobility protocols all have been shown to independently improve ICU outcomes. But more recent evidence, and I'm speaking now of studies published really in the last five years, have shown that uh, by combining pain and sedation management with ventilator weaning protocols or early mobility protocols, that this can result in significant synergistic improvements in ICU outcomes, including additional reductions in duration of mechanical ventilation, ICU length of stay, and the incidence of delirium in critically ill patients. I think full implementation of the new ICU pad care bundle, however, uh, if linked to these other quote-unquote non-pad activities like ventilator weaning protocols and early mobility protocols, would be expected to achieve even greater improvements in ICU outcomes than what we've seen to date by combining, for instance, either ventilator weaning protocols with sedation protocols as was done in the ABC trial, uh, which showed that mechanical ventilation in that study was reduced by three additional days, ICU and hospital length of stay was reduced by four days, and uh, the risk of death was reduced by 32%. That was the synergistic additional benefit of combining those two interventions over and above just doing one of them alone. Um, around the same time, another study by Peter Morris and colleagues at Wake Forest showed that linking the ABC protocol with an early mobility protocol in the ICU further shortened the average length of stay in the ICU by almost one and a half days and hospital length of stays by over three days. And other studies by Schweikert and others have shown early mobility protocols linked to spontaneous awakening trials also significantly reduce the incidence of delirium in critically ill patients with a threefold increase in the likelihood patients can achieve an independent functional status at discharge, meaning more of these patients can go home from the hospital instead of to a skilled nursing facility. In 2010, uh, Vasilevsky's at Vanderbilt somewhat captured this integrated approach to managing pain sedation and delirium together with ventilator weaning and early mobility by coining the phrase ABCDE bundle, which stands for awakening and breathing coordination, delirium prevention and monitoring, and early mobility and exercise. And we believe that full implementation of the ICU pad care bundle is really likely to achieve dramatic, significant, synergistic improvements in ICU patient outcomes over and above what we've seen in some of these earlier studies combining strategies. Guidelines are always difficult to implement in any intensive care unit. What were your suggestions on how do we take your PAD guidelines and get them implemented as part of the culture or hardwire them into our intensive care units? 
that's a really good question, and I think that's the 800-pound gorilla sitting on top of the pad care bundle. But, look, improving the management of pain, agitation, delirium, and ICU patients isn't really about finding magic drugs or high-tech boxes to improve the care of our patients. It's really about making the care that we deliver more patient-centered and really to fully invest ourselves as critical care providers in this process. To that end, successful implementation of these guidelines is going to require an integrated, interdisciplinary, and team-based approach. PAD implementation teams should include not only ICU physicians and nurses, but respiratory therapists, pharmacists, physical and occupational therapists, hospital administrators, as well as ICU patients and their families. Such teams should also include an ICU clinical champion, someone who leads by example and who can inspire ICU staff to widely adopt and apply the elements of the pad care bundle in their ICUs. But the key to successful implementation of the pad care bundle beyond putting together an interdisciplinary team is to really break it down into steps, focusing first on implementing pad monitoring tools in your ICU then incorporating the results of these assessments into your ICU daily care plans. Develop and implement integrated pain, sedation, and delirium management protocols that incorporate both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic strategies that are specific to your ICUs. And finally, integrating these PAD treatment protocols with spontaneous awakening trials, spontaneous breathing trials, early mobility programs, and environmental management strategies to prevent complications of over-sedation and to maximize their impact on ICU outcomes. But really, successful implementation of the PAD care bundle has to start with the use of valid and reliable pain, sedation, and delirium assessment tools in the ICU. Over-sedation of ICU patients often results from the fact that we use multiple drugs to treat an agitated patient because we aren't really sure why he or she is agitated. Without using valid and reliable assessment tools, it can be truly challenging to correctly identify the source of agitation in critically ill patients. For instance, we may incorrectly assume that an agitated ICU patient is delirious when they may actually be in significant pain even if they haven't had a surgical procedure or we may assume that an agitated surgical patient needs more pain medication when they actually are just anxious because they can't see or hear without their eyeglasses or their hearing aids. Or we may assume that an agitated patient is under-sedated because of growing tolerance to the sedative agent they've been receiving for several days when they may actually be delirious now due to the sedatives themselves. The use of validated bedside assessment tools to separately assess pain, sedation, and delirium enables ICU clinicians to correctly identify the cause of the patient's agitation and to treat them more effectively. For instance, for patients who can self-report their pain, a numerical rating scale rating the severity of pain from 0 to 10 is considered to be the most appropriate way to assess pain in these patients. But for ICU patients who cannot communicate effectively, a behavioral pain assessment tool should be used instead. And the critical care pain observation tool, also known as the CPOT tool, and the behavioral pain scale, known as the BPS, are considered to be the most valid and reliable behavioral pain assessment tools for use in the ICU based on the psychometric assessment of pain scales that were, was performed as part of the 2013 PAT guidelines. 
Similar psychometric analyses in the PAD guidelines demonstrated that the Richmond Agitation Scale, known as the RAS Scale, and the Sedation Agitation Scale, known as the SAS Scale, are considered to be the most valid and reliable ICU sedation assessment tools. And finally, the Confusion Assessment Method for ICU, also known as the CAM ICU tool, and the Intensive Care Delirium Screening Checklist, uh, commonly referred to as the ICDSC tool, would be considered the most valid and reliable delirium assessment tools for use in ICU patients. Once you have successfully implemented PAD monitoring tools in your ICU and you're confident that your ICU staff are performing these assessments consistently and reliably, the next step is to then incorporate the results of these assessments into your ICU daily care plans. Every day on ICU rounds, the following questions should be addressed at the bedside by your ICU team. What's the patient's current pain score and their analgesia regimen? What's the patient's current and target sedation scores and their current sedation regimen? What's the patient's delirium scores and what are their preventable delirium risk factors? To optimize pain management using your ICU-specific pad management protocols, the main take-home points here are to assess and treat pain first, then sedate using an analgesia or analgo sedation uh, strategy. Treat significant pain, which we define as a numerical rating score of greater than or equal to four, a BPS of greater than or equal to six, or a CPOT of greater than or equal to three. Use appropriate pain management strategies that are patient-specific and administer pre-procedural analgesia for all painful invasive procedures. To optimize uh, sedation management in critically ill patients, we recommend minimizing sedative abuse to avoid over-sedation using either daily sedation interruption or targeted sedation strategies. With the goal of achieving daily periods of light sedation to allow patients to participate in spontaneous breathing trials and early mobility activities, you should choose sedatives that are patient-specific to minimize side effects. But the overall goal for what we define as an optimal level of sedation is that patients should be generally responsive, aware, and able to purposely follow commands. Specifically, they should be able to perform three out of five commands, such as open your eyes, maintain eye contact, squeeze your hands, stick out your tongue, or wiggle your toes. This level of consciousness would correspond to a RAS score of zero to minus two or a SAS score of three to four. To optimize delirium management, we recommend, first and foremost, to optimize pain management. Avoid deep sedation, which is shown to be a risk factor for delirium. Frequently reorient patients. Avoid deliriogenic drugs in patients who are at risk for delirium. And to discontinue all deliriogenic drugs in patients who are diagnosed with delirium in the ICU. Finally, link your PAD protocols with spontaneous awakening trials and spontaneous breathing trials to facilitate weaning from mechanical ventilation and link your spontaneous awakening trials to early mobility and exercise protocols to reduce delirium and to improve strength and implement environmental controls to protect patients' sleep-wake cycles to reduce delirium and improve sleep as well. So these are the main elements of the PAD care bundle. First, to assess, then to treat, finally to prevent, and to do that for pain 
sedation and delirium distinctly, but in an integrated fashion. So let's fast forward a little bit. What will be the influence of these uh, PAD guidelines in, in 2013? How are they going to influence the practice of critical care moving forward? You know, we believe this, the 2013 PAD guidelines are widely adopted, that they have the potential to really broadly transform the care of critically ill patients, resulting in significant improvements in ICU patient outcomes, including improved pain management, uh, reduced duration of mechanical ventilation, reduced incidence of ICU delirium, and a reduced incidence of significant long-term physical and cognitive dysfunction in ICU survivors. These benefits are likely to also translate into significant reductions in ICU and hospital lengths of stay and mortality rates, improved ICU and hospital patient flow, reduced numbers of ICU survivors requiring skilled nursing care after hospital discharge, significant reductions in the overall costs of these patients' care, and reduced burdens to the families of ICU patients meaning that more ICU patients, if managed with the PAD guidelines, are likely to survive their hospitalization, go home sooner, and return to their previous level of functioning after discharge, all at a lower cost to healthcare systems. And given the ubiquitous nature of pain, agitation, over-sedation, and delirium in critically ill patients, the expected benefits of implementing the 2013 PAD guidelines are likely to exceed the demonstrated benefits of implementing the sepsis bundle and the sepsis guidelines. These benefits can only be achieved, however, if the PAD guidelines are widely adopted and implemented in an integrated and interdisciplinary fashion. Although implementing the ICU PAD care bundle does require a significant amount of time and effort, the potential benefits of this bundle being implemented clearly outweigh the risks and expense of these interventions. How much money would your hospital or healthcare system save if it could significantly reduce patient ventilator days and reduce ICU length of stay by two to four days? How many more patients could you care for in your ICU by opening up more ICU beds? How many more of your patients would survive both their ICU and hospital stay and, and then return to a high quality of life after discharge? And how many of your patients would prefer to go home after surviving a life-threatening illness? How can teams use these guidelines to drive performance improvement in their institutions? We believe that the biggest challenges for ICUs to fully implement the ICU PAD care bundle will be, number one, training ICU staff to consistently and reliably perform and interpret pain, agitation, delirium assessments. Two, making pain, sedation, and delirium management less dependent on individual physician orders. Three, convincing ICU physicians and nurses that maintaining light sedation to the point where ICU patients are able to interact with their environment without becoming agitated is not only feasible but better for their patients than deep sedation. Four, overcoming logistical barriers to coordinating pain, sedation, and delirium management with spontaneous awakening trials, spontaneous breathing trials, and physical and occupational therapy activities in ICU patients. And finally, convincing ICU providers that it is safe and feasible to mobilize ICU patients while they're still intubated and mechanically ventilated, getting them out of a chair, out of bed to a chair and walking them around the ICU. That's kind of mind-boggling to a lot of providers if they haven't seen that happen before. But to fully realize all of the potential benefits of the ICU pad care bundle, it's 
very important to monitor both your performance and outcomes in order to ensure that your ICU pain, agitation, delirium protocols are seamlessly working in coordination with one another and that there is a high level of compliance with all the ICU pad care bundle elements in all of your ICUs. If you don't measure both process and outcome measures for each of your interventions and you only measure outcome measures and you're not achieving the outcomes that you expect, you won't know if that's because you weren't compliant with a process that was otherwise effective or you were compliant with the process but the process itself was ineffective. Basically, you don't know what you don't measure. So data has a tremendous amount of power in storytelling and convincing people that are on the fence about whether they should join the ICU pad care bundle express or not. and we believe that data will help to accelerate your improvement processes in your ICUs in implementing the PAD Care Bundle. Now, we have a corresponding set of metrics for the PAD Care Bundle specific to each of the elements in the bundle to help ICUs measure their performance. And these have been published as a separate figure in the PAD guidelines along with the PAD Care Bundle. Monitoring these PAD metrics in conjunction with more traditional outcome measures such as duration of mechanical ventilation, ICU and hospital lengths of stay and mortality can be powerful drivers to improving ICU performance and ICU patient outcomes. Over the past 10 years, the widespread adoption of the SCCM sepsis guidelines has led to significant improvements in clinical outcomes for septic ICU patients. We hope that this will become the decade of the ICU PAD guidelines in terms of improving ICU patient care. What the intensive care unit looked like, you know, 1999, what it looks like in 2013, I mean, some of our listeners may not have, you know, been out of medical school or nursing school then, but in 1999 we kept people in bed, we kept them on Versed drips, we didn't do spontaneous awake trials, spontaneous breathing trials. Um, you know, a lot of the things that we take, you know, there was perhaps TVs were left on overnight, so you know the, the providers taking care of them can watch, the, you know, watch the news or listen to music, uh, and a lot of the sleep hygiene things that we're doing on a daily basis now, I, I think a lot of us take that for granted that that's just you know the way things are done. But it wasn't that long ago where the, none of those were considerations, not at all. I believe that those best practices that you just enumerated are not, have not been as widely adopted yet as you may believe. I go around the country visiting different hospitals, small, medium, and large, academic, community, uh, government-based hospitals, and the variability in uh, these PAD practices is really quite striking. Uh, and there's data to show that even though in 2002, for instance, that uh, sedation scales were one of the top recommendation of the 2002 sedation and analgesia guidelines, in 2012, they certainly have become more commonly utilized, but uh, studies published in the last few years have shown that it's still a minority number of ICUs that do sedation monitoring 
And although most ICUs uh, use numerical rating scales to assess pain in critically ill patients, uh, a large percentage of ICU patients can't self-report their pain. And the vast majority of ICUs are not using behavioral pain scales as an alternative to numerical rating scales to assess pain in critically ill patients. And finally, although I think a lot of attention has been paid to and notoriety attached to monitoring delirium in ICUs in the United States, the CAM ICU tool is probably used more commonly than ICDSC, whereas in Canada it's the other way around. Still, that's a minority number of hospitals in 2013 that are utilizing uh, delirium monitoring routinely and reliably in their ICUs. And really, you need to be monitoring all three of those domains using the most valid and reliable tools available to you. If you're already using one of the valid and reliable tools, that's terrific, but you should consider expanding your toolbox to include those that you aren't yet utilizing because otherwise you're, you're really not getting a complete picture that will help you to optimally manage your patients who are agitated or over-sedated in the ICU, and there are downsides to both. In your experience, I mean, everything that's mentioned in the guidelines, this is straightforward. Um, this is straightforward things to do. Um, a lot of it is just it's very practical information. And so what are the barriers that are keeping people, you know, in your travels around the country from adopting, uh, you know, the things that are in the pad care bundle? I think um, that's a very interesting question, and I don't pretend to have all the answers to that question, but in my own observations and those people that work in this field, there are some common themes that are prevalent across ICUs of different size and colors and types, if you will, that determine the success or failure of implementing a complex set of guidelines like the PAD guidelines. Number one, um, multidisciplinary team approaches in the ICU make all the difference in the world. If, if your ICU is still hierarchical, uh, and pyramidal in shape with physicians at the top of that pyramid writing every single order for every single intervention in the ICU. And if you're not rounding at the bedside in a multidisciplinary fashion and having an interactive conversation on a daily basis and you're not coming up with a, a team-based approach to the ICU care plan, you're going to be very challenged in implementing the PAD guidelines or any other evidence-based best practice in your ICU. If you don't have a clinician champion, and traditionally we've said that physicians need to be the champions of change to achieve real change in a complex dynamic setting like an ICU, but that myth is getting debunked, and we see more and more nurse champions, respiratory therapy champions, pharmacy champions. It's really not a question of what your credentials are. It's a question of what your credibility is in your own ICU. And if you're the kind of 
critical care provider who can rally people around you to try new things and you have a track record in doing that, you're much more likely to be a successful champion uh, for these guidelines as well. So it's also important to point out that these guidelines and their creation were um, uh, the guideline task force itself was was quite multidisciplinary, and we worked in a very interdisciplinary way. It includes uh, pharmacists, nurses, advanced practice nurses, and physicians across different critical care disciplines. We have anesthesiologists, pulmonary critical care experts, and uh, um, people with trauma and surgical ICU expertise and neuro ICU expertise on this guideline panel. So they were really created in the spirit of, of uh, adopting an interdisciplinary approach to these best practices. So I, I think that having an interdisciplinary culture of patient care is much more likely to um, get you where you want to be, where you need to be in implementing the PAD guidelines in your ICU. Great. Thank you very much. We've been talking to Dr. Barr, who is an associate professor in anesthesia at Stanford University and one of the co-authors and presenter of the Clinical Practice Guidelines for Management of Pain, Agitation, and Delirium in Adult Patients in the Intensive Care Unit. Dr. Barr, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Dr. Guy, and thank you, Society of Critical Care Medicine, for your support of these guidelines. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care Podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare. For more episodes or subscribe at iTunes by searching SCCM. If you are unable to attend one of SCCM's live courses, you can view the educational sessions on your own time and at your own pace through SCCM On Demand. Events such as SCCM's world-renowned board review courses and even Congress are available on demand. For more information or to order an on-demand course, visit www.sccm.org store or ask to speak with a customer service representative. Jeffrey Guy, MD, MSC, MMHC, is editor of the iCritical Care Podcasts. He is the chief medical officer at Centennial Women's and Children's Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. His clinical practice is focused on critical care, pediatric and adult burn surgery, and emergency general surgery. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.